Henry Nowen, of course, was a professor at Harvard Divinity School. And he was a Roman Catholic priest from Northern Europe. And was one of the most profound and prolific theologians um, and experts on Christian spirituality in the 20th century. And now when died, I'm not exactly sure when, but in the late 80s, he was invited to this conference about, and think about this, about a vision for Christian leadership in the 21st century. So he was invited to this in the late 80s, and you know, it was, you know, the 20th, 21st century was still 10 to 15 years out. And it's really amazing how prescient his words and reflections on Christian leadership um, are 20 years into the 21st century. Um, and I read this book either at the end of seminary or at the beginning, beginning of my ordained ministry. And it's kind of been a guiding light um, hence the coffee stains and wrinkled pages um, and notes in the margins. And I, when I was directing an Episcopal Service Corps program in Memphis, we always used this book as kind of our introduction into the year and what it meant to follow Jesus and be kind of a conscientious baptized person um, in their work in ministry. So even though he frames everything as, you know, a vision for Christian leadership, I've adapted it for the purposes of this class for people who are baptized. What does it mean to be baptized, to follow Jesus, to be conscious of that following, and conscious in a life of prayer, especially as we enter the season of Lent? I first visited the Episcopal Church in, this would have been December or so of 2008 when I was still in college, um, when I was in Texas over Christmas break. And then when I got back to college after the break, I started attending kind of off and on the Episcopal Parish 30 minutes north. Um, and according to my college parish priest, who is, um, he has a way, of, way with words and um, is a romantic at heart. He has this story about how, you know, the very first time you ever visit the, visited the Episcopal Church, it was in the season of Lent, and I remember, and you weren't shaving yet, and all of this stuff. <laughs> and, you know, has this great story. And, and so I kind of also adopt his perspective that, I first kind of became familiar with Episcopal liturgy and ritual through the season of Lent. And so every year during Lent, it's sort of a return for me to this, um, this pivot in my life and this change in my life. And I get really, really excited about Lent, um, which is counterintuitive. But I think that there is, as we said in our prayer, there is a, an element of revival when it comes to Lent. Um, a friend of mine says that Baptists have revivals and Episcopalians have Lent. Um, 
which is really true. It's such a, a great and succinct way to say that. So what Nowen does in this book is also counterintuitive. When, when we talk about Christian leadership or Christian life in the 21st century, we don't often or readily think of Jesus being tempted in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. That's not, that, if I were writing this book, that is not the place I would start. But that is the place that Henry Nowen starts. And just to give you a sense of this rhythm and rhyme of his approach to Christian leadership and our approach to Lent in this class, is he lays out in every chapter a temptation that Jesus experiences and a discipline that Jesus practices to resist that temptation. We can stand in church every Sunday and Wednesday and say, resist temptation, resist temptation, resist temptation. But it is not helpful if we don't identify what those temptations are and we don't equip ourselves with the ability, with the help of God, of course, to resist those temptations. Brian McLaren in his book, Finding Our Way Again, which is all about Christian practices, practices that sustain the baptized life, discusses how in Buddhism, there is this overwhelming sense that Buddhism is a practice, not a system of belief. Um, and fill in the blank about a lot of different world religions. There is the sense that it, it truly is a practice, a way of life, not just a system of belief. Christianity is, at its best, a practice, a, a way of following Jesus. Um, sometimes it's helpful when we're being at our most generous to think of different denominations as different ways of following Jesus and glorifying God. Um, when we're less generous, we don't have as nice words to say about that. Um, but it is helpful, especially in a season of practice like Lent, when we're thinking about things that we're giving up and we're thinking about practices to take on, to think that at the heart of our faith, at the heart of our faith is a certain way of praying and living in the world. And when we pray a certain way, when we practice a certain way, then hopefully our behavior and our thoughts, et cetera, follow. Um, Richard Rohr, who is of great fame at St. John's Cathedral and kind of across the Episcopal Church in Colorado, says something really helpful about belief versus practice, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically he says that we don't think our way into a new way of life. We practice our way into a new way of thinking. Um, and so that is kind of the guiding principle of what we'll be talking about today. So we will, and, and some of this involves um, group work and inner reflection. So I hope that you came with all of that in mind.
So what we'll do this morning is quickly look at these readings. They're all from Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4. And I included Matthew 3. It's, it's fun to read the Bible. That is a sentence. The second sentence is that it's fun to read the Bible in context. Um, I think I've said in sermons before, and I heard this growing up in my Baptist upbringing, that a text without context is a pretext for a subtext. And so we always want to read the Bible in context. And what, I, what was revealed to me in deep prayer and study for today, not so much deep, that was a joke, um, is... Jesus is led into the wilderness, it seems, immediately after he's baptized. And, and that is an important, that's an important trope for us to keep in mind and to keep in our hearts as we enter into Lent. That Lent originally was a 40-day season of preparation for baptism. So Jesus is baptized and goes into the wilderness Christians go into the wilderness and then are baptized. Um, and that has been the sense of the church from really the earliest times. Lent is one of our, our oldest seasons in the church year. So the text says, and when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus receives this identity of love in the waters of baptism. And in our in our Bibles, at home and on the internet, etc., this is actually a chapter break. But as we know, chapters did not come along, verses and chapters did not come along um, until the 12th century, basically. So if original readers would have said, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. <laughs> of course he was. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, and this is the first temptation, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Fascinating. My Hebrew Bible professor, Dr. Judy Fentress Williams, talks about intertextuality, intertextuality when reading scripture. And one of the important things when we're reading scripture is when we see certain words or certain literary tropes it's probably worth our attention. So when we think about the wilderness, what are some other stories that come to mind in scripture? Israelites wandering in the wilderness, in the wilderness for 40 years, 40 long years. Any other 
wilderness stories. Hagar in the wilderness. Hagar is Abraham's concubine. And she's actually, she's Egyptian. She's of African descent. And she is the first person in the Bible to name God. She's the first person to give God a name, which is a fascinating fact about her. But she is cast into the wilderness by Abraham. (laughs) That is a long story. (laughs) Not a good story. Um, Lots of patriarchy, bad, bad things there. But yes, Hagar is in the wilderness. The Israelites are in the wilderness. The wilderness is a, literarily in scripture, it is a, a place of preparation. It is very similar to Genesis 1 and 2, where it says, and the earth was without void. The earth was void and without form. And the spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. There is this sense of of nothingness, and yet something is there. Um, and, And that's when we have had wilderness experiences, I'm sure. We have all experienced that sense of void and nothing, and yet there is something, and that something, of course, is God. So in the wilderness... Jesus is faced, really, there are so many different ways to read this. You know, is the devil a person um, who appears? Is the devil thoughts that Jesus has in his mind? Um, It's really hard to know. That is very open to interpretation, and and biblical scholars... um, have a field day with, you know, what the devil is, who the devil is, which cultures, Christianity and Judaism, um, borrowed the devil from, et cetera, et cetera. But it's this voice, it's this person, it's this force that, that wants Jesus to take the shortcut. So think about that. You think about how much time, and I'm a, I make bread at home. It, I have a very simple recipe that I like to make. It's only, you know, like a two-hour thing. Um, but think about very involved bread making and all of the resources one needs and all of the time one needs and the planning one needs and the recipes and the perfect heat and elevation. <laughs> And Jesus is, he could have turned the stones into bread, but he doesn't. And now when says that this temptation is the temptation to be relevant, the temptation to be relevant. And the one thing that I will say is that underlying all three of these temptations is, is that desire as a Christian person, as a priest, as a professional, as you know, fill in the blank, whatever your, your state in life is, there is always the temptation to be relevant. 
Now when, after he taught at Harvard Divinity School, went to live in Canada among people with profound mental and physical disabilities. And a lot of his insight in this book is gained from his time with those people in the La Arche community. And he says this about the temptation to be relevant, even in his own work in that little community. These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people force me to let go of my relevant self, the self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, and force me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable, open to receive and give love, regardless of any accomplishments. The people for whom he was caring and for whom were caring for him did not care that he had taught at Harvard Divinity School. That was irrelevant to them. And he probably was going into that community in much the same way that so many of us enter into any new community or any new job, we think about all the things we've accomplished, our degrees, our income, our pedigree. And that's often what we lead with at cocktail parties, in the grocery store, when we talk to people, um, at parties of any kind. And all of those things are good, that's the thing. It's none of that is bad. And sometimes I would much rather talk about my degrees to people who I'm just meeting once um, than I would want to open up and be vulnerable with them. I mean, this is not, you shouldn't be pouring your heart out to everyone every time you meet them, every time you meet a new person. But the point he's making is that is the constant temptation of kind of educated, professional people is, is to lead with those things and to really keep these surface relationships with people, to be relevant in some way. And a lot of my, my father, who is a very complex person, he just um, retired last year from his career of 39 years. He drove trains, he was a locomotive engineer. And one of the things that he and I talk about a lot is defining himself apart from his job. I mean, that's what he led with for 39 years. I drive trains, I work for the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railway Company, et cetera. He has to have a new script now because he doesn't work there anymore. His favorite thing to say to me, even though he lives on a pension, his favorite thing to say to me is that he's unemployed. <laughs> and I'm like, You'll ha you have more money than I'll ever have. You're like, this, this is not fair um, to say this. But this is a person, just like so many people who enter retirement, um, who have been defined by their careers 
And then there is often this moment of crisis, either before retirement, during, or after, um, of am I my job? Um, and the same can be said about parenting. The same can be said about marriage uh, once a spouse dies or a divorce happens. Et I mean, fill in the blank. We have all had these moments where we have sort of identified so closely with one thing that we can't differentiate ourselves from the things we do or accomplish. And so now when says, in order to resist this temptation, Jesus' first temptation to be relevant, we must be rooted in contemplative prayer. So, it's interesting that Jesus only goes into the wilderness after he has heard the voice of God say, I love you. We just heard this in church, I think on January 12th. In his baptism, he hears the voice of God say, I love you. There is nothing you can do to deserve this love. There is nothing you can do to end it. Um, there, there just ain't much you can do about it, period. And this is Jesus's grounding reality and identity. And in prayer, in contemplative prayer, that is where we hear the voice of God saying, you are more than what you've accomplished. You are more than what you do. You are more than what you can produce. You are loved. I love you. That is it. There's nothing you can do about that. The prayer book is not often clear about much, but it is clear about one thing. In the introduction to the baptismal rite, it says that the, the bond that God forms in baptism is indissoluble. The form that the bond that God forms with us, establishes with us in baptism is indissoluble, impenetrable. That identity we receive is there forever. And that is the identity that we revisit when we practice contemplative prayer. Nowen says this about relevance and prayer. Beneath all the great accomplishments of our time, there is a deep current of despair. While efficiency and control are the great aspirations of our society, the loneliness, isolation, lack of friendship and intimacy, broken relationships, boredom, feelings of emptiness, and a deep sense of uselessness fill the hearts of millions of people in our success-oriented world. And contemplative prayer, practicing contemplative prayer is one of those ways of resisting that despair. I'll also say this, rereading this book, it, it, it is good to know that Henry Nouwen um, had a proclivity for darkness. <laughs> 
Um, he was not necessarily a happy person. Um, he was deeply conflicted about a lot of different things that I will not go into detail about here today. Um, and so kind of sometimes he, he, he's going off of a cliff in this book and I'm, I'm just not willing to go there with him. Um, so a lot of the things obviously that he is projecting on to other Christian leaders um, are really things that he himself was experiencing, just like any writer. I mean, there's a lot of projection in writing, but that's just something for us to keep in mind if you hear something very dark um, in one of these quotes. And then he ends this chapter by saying this. The leaders of the future, and for the purposes of this class, Christians of the future, Christians of the 21st century, of the now, are those who dare to claim their irrelevance in the contemporary world as a divine vocation that allows them to enter into a deep solidarity with the anguish underlying all the glitter of success and to bring the light of Jesus there. And I wrote in the margins, I disagree with that last little piece where he says, we bring the light of Jesus there. My understanding is the light is already there and much of our work is uncovering the light that is there. We uncover it, we are scouts of light in the world. That's one way of saying it. And then he says this, knowing God's heart, means consistently, radically, and very concretely to announce and reveal that God is love and only love. And that every time fear, isolation, or despair begins to invade the human soul, this is not something that comes from God. This sounds very simple and maybe even trite, but very few people know that they are loved without condition or limits without condition or limits. Love is the basis of our identity in God. And so he then goes on to talk about contemplative prayer, and we can't go very deep on this. But he says contemplative prayer, and contemplative prayer is really what Brother Lawrence, who, who was a a monk in a different century would talk about is, is practicing the presence of God with the assumption that God is always and everywhere present. Contemplative prayer simply sheds all words, eventually all thoughts, you know, after much practice, and leaves us with the naked self, the self that is more than what they've accomplished, more than what they can do. It leaves us with the self that is fully and completely loved, accepted, welcomed, and forgiven by God. And he says contemplative prayer deepens in us the knowledge that we are already free, that we have already found a place to dwell, that we already belong to God, even though everything and everyone around us keeps suggesting the opposite. Everyone and everything 
keep suggesting the opposite. Any reflections on that? Yes. I wanted to ask you, tying it back to the Jesus being relevant with not turning the stone to bread, does that mean that because he's supposed to be the son of God, that he's, his role or his relevance is about only doing what God wants? Or what is, how does it, how do you explain the relevance in not turning the stone to bread? That's a great question, Robin. I, I think about this. Um, you know, Jesus is tempted to turn the stone into bread. And he doesn't, ultimately. And, and that can be for many different reasons. One reason could be, and this is just me wondering, you know, wondering out loud, that life with God is more than a gimmick. It's not, you know, they, they were people in the first century, they were getting these gimmicks of the empire. So at this time, it was very common as a form of social control by the Roman emperor to give what we all learned about in school as bread and circuses. And so in order to keep the lowest of the low, the lowest of the low, Caesar would commit to doing a couple of things, build stadiums and entertain the people and do bread giveaways from time to time. Jesus, in a way, is kind of the anti-Caesar. He is not interested in bread and circuses. He's not interested in the gimmick. He's not interested in the shortcut. He's not interested in the success or the, the acclaim that comes from this. We'll hear this in the gospel this morning. Jesus, you know, is transfigured. And at the very end, he says, do not tell anyone about this. Jesus was not great at PR, not great at marketing. He didn't have a communications coordinator. Um, because if that had been anyone else, basically, they would have taken the gimmick, taken the shortcut, made the stone into bread, got, gotten a trademark on it, and run those ads every day. And what Jesus does in this practice, and, 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 and what we're assuming is when he rejects the gimmick of changing the stone into bread, he is remembering that he is more than what he performs, he is more than what he can do, he is more than what he accomplishes. That his identity lies in God's love and God's unconditional acceptance and welcome. So I think that was a very complicated way to respond to that, but that's a, it's such a good question. He rejects the gimmick. So our next part um, that we'll move on to, and so I want you to keep these because what you'll do at home, not to um, micromanage your spiritual life, <laughs> but we made this handout with 
this in mind, that maybe there are some people in the room who are excited about Lent, excited to give something up, excited to take on new practices. And, and this can be used as a sort of worksheet or matrix for how to figure that out and discern what, what things might I be doing, what practices might I have that feed my desire to be relevant? What practices do I have that feed my desire to be popular? What practices or habits do I have that keep me from being led, that, that, that push the urge within me to lead and to control? And so hopefully, um, as you're ruminating about on this and praying about this, those practices and habits will come to mind that might be worth giving up. And the next week what we'll do is talk about how to sustain those practices for the 40 days of Lent. So we'll move quickly to the next piece. This is also why I write all of my sermons out. Um, word for word, because I'm extremely long-winded. And if I did not write my sermons, my sermons would be very, very long because I start talking and I can't stop. So the next thing that Jesus does is moves from popularity to ministry. The devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem and places him on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus has no qualms about arguing about the Bible. Um, obviously, the devil is very familiar with the Bible and tosses scripture at Jesus, but the devil is um, reading it out of context, and he is not a good model for us on reading the Bible, um, or anything for that matter. And Jesus counters him with scripture as well. Now one says this, the second temptation to which Jesus was exposed was precisely the temptation to do something spectacular, something that could win him great applause. Throw yourself from the parapet of the temple and let the angels catch you and carry you in their arms. But Jesus refused to be a stuntman. He did not come to prove himself. And I mean, a lot of these, this, this temptation and the last have a lot in common. He did not come to walk on hot coals, swallow fire, and no offense to anyone who swallows fire, <laughs> or put his hand in the lion's mouth to demonstrate that he had something worthwhile to say. Don't put the Lord your God to the test, he said. And then Nowen goes on to say this. Stardom and individual heroism 
which are such obvious aspects of our competitive society, are not at all alien to the church. And I'm sure it is not at all alien to your places of work or to your family or to your relationships. There too, the dominant image is that of the self-made person who can do it all alone. Isn't that a great temptation? Um, especially in our culture when it's almost criminal to not say that one is self-made. That's, that's just such, it's such a part of American culture that, I mean, it, I'm actually nervous to say this out loud um, because it is such an underlying assumption that we have that we are self-made. I did not grow up with that assumption. Um, my parents made it very clear um, number one, that we didn't have much, so we, you didn't need to be proud about being self-made when you don't have much. But number two, and my grandmother, who, um, my mom's mom, who was a very devout Christian, very, very much a practitioner of Christianity, you know, my most vivid memories of her, are her kneeling at the side of her bed every night before sleeping to pray. But one of the things she would talk about, so she was left by my mom's father right after my mom was born. So she was left alone, I think at about age 28, 29, with five children to raise on her own. And her interpretation of that whole sequence of her life so this is her 20s, 30s, 40s. I think my mom graduated from high school when, when my grandmother was in her late 40s. My grandmother had very vivid memories whenever someone would do something kind for her when she was out in public with her five children. She could name the date, she could name the person, she could name the church members who would give them clothes, fill in the blank. She was, that was very vivid in her, her spiritual practice and in her Christian identity. That she herself was not self-made. Even though she could be lauded for raising five children on her own. She knew, of course, that she ultimately was responsible for her children and for their well-being and their welfare. But that, that did not happen in a vacuum. It was a web of connection and compassion and help that got her to the point of raising five children who she was very proud did not go to jail. <laughs> It's like the one thing she was really proud of. None of them went to jail and none of them are, are any trouble. Um, that's what my parents say about me and my brother as well. We're not in jail and we're not any trouble. And so Jesus, who could have jumped from the temple and been saved by angels, which I mean, that's hyperbolic, says, 
I am not self-made. If, if I performed this trick, it would seem that I did this on my own without God's help. And he resists this temptation. Nowen says that the way we resist this temptation is through confession and forgiveness. And he says that one of the things to remember, and he's talking mainly to clergy, but this is applicable to everyone, that it is Jesus who heals, not I. Jesus who speaks words of truth, not I. Jesus who is Lord, not I. Um, that is a very popular cultural saying. Um, Beyonce says this in one of her songs, God is God and I am not. God is God and I am not. None of us are self-made. And one of, the, one of the prompts for this sequence is reflecting on appropriate ways we can more fully open ourselves to naming shortcomings and accepting forgiveness. When we are conscious of our shortcomings, of our sins, of the ways in which we don't hit the mark or hit the goal, it's much easier for us to admit that we are not God. Much, much easier. But if we think we have no faults, that we are perfect, it is much more difficult to accept God's help when we need it. He goes on to say this. Sins are mentioned, and he's talking about kind of the lack of culture, of confession, renewal, and absolution in the church. He says, the sacrament of confession has often become a way to keep our own vulnerability hidden from our community. Sins are mentioned and ritual words of forgiveness are spoken, but seldom does a real encounter take place in which the reconciling and healing presence of Jesus can be experienced. Now, I kind of disagree with him about this. Um, the moments I have gone to confession and the moments I have heard someone's confession, I actually do believe that there is real re reconciliation you know, there, there is a lot of good things that are happening in that sacramental encounter. Um, I think what he's talking about more so is in Roman Catholic settings where, for, where confession is a prerequisite to receive communion and it can kind of become this rote thing that one does on Saturday night or Sunday morning before one receives communion. Um, so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on that. Um, in our tradition, where personal and individual confession is less common, um, every time I've experienced it, it has been a powerful experience. And he goes on to say that this, there is so much fear, so much distance, so much generalization, and so little real listening speaking and absolving 
that not much true sacramentality can be expected. Confession and forgiveness are the concrete forms in which we sinful people love one another. The concrete forms in which we sinful people love one another. He goes on to say about clergy, and this is applicable to everyone. They need a place where they can share their deep pain and struggles with people who do not need them. Think about that for just a moment. Who loves you and on some level does not need you? Who loves you and does not need you? And, and by need you, it means need something from you, need you to produce something or to perform something. Who loves you without condition? And who can guide you ever deeper into the mystery of God's love? I think about all of my closest, all of my closest relationships are like that. I can't be in relationship with people who need something from me. Um, sometimes that's unavoidable, but if it is avoidable, it's a good thing to avoid. Um, the codependence, the, and, and some of, sometimes those things are appropriate at work, of course. Yes, there, you know, people need things from me, there are deadlines, etc. But when I'm home, when I am myself, what relationships am I fostering that don't demand performance, that don't demand um, spectacle? And I think that's a question worth asking. And one of your practices for Lent might be deepening those relationships with people who don't need anything from you. That is an acceptable Lenten practice is deep in those relationships. Okay, maybe I'll go to coffee with this person once a month during Lent. That is, that is a legitimate Lenten practice. Who can I spend time with for whom when I am in their presence, I am neither nervous nor performing, but I'm given the space to be myself. They're not trying to fix me, they're not trying to control me, which I think is the definition of love. And then we'll move quickly to the third point. And before we move there, with that person or those people who you identify in your life, that extends to being able to admit when you have wronged them or someone else and them not trying to, to fix you, they can forgive you and you can move on um, to greater depths with them. So the third temptation, from leading to being led, the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And says to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus says to him, away with you, Satan. For it is writ written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. 
Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the temptation to be powerful. The temptation to be powerful. It seems easier now and says to love, to be God than to love God. It's easier to be God than to love God. The temptation of power. He says this, when I ask myself the main reason for so many people leaving the church during the past decades in France, Germany, Holland, and also in Canada and North America, the word power easily comes to mind. One of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power, political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power. Even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. The temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest of all. Power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. And I scribbled in my um, margins. If I have power, I don't have to love. I think that's the quote of the day. If I have power, then I don't have to love. If I control someone, I don't have to love them. And as we say at weddings, as we say at funerals, as we say at baptisms, love is not an easy thing. Ask anyone who's been married for two minutes, let alone 60 years or someone who raises a child. Love is not an easy thing. It is hard, hard work. And the shortcut is to simply control people and have power over them and dictate to them the agenda for the day. Because then I don't have to love. And we'll close here. He talks about the counter to power being strenuous theological reflection. And theological reflection is the following. It is discerning or observing how God acts in human history and how the personal, communal, national, and international events that occur during our lives can make us more and more sensitive to the ways in which we are led to the cross and through the cross to the resurrection. That is strenuous theological reflection. It's being cruciform people is seeing the cross everywhere. And the cross is that event in which Jesus becomes most vulnerable, most out of control. I remember 
in my hospital chaplaincy and seminary, leading a small group on the mental health floor at the hospital. And we were, you know, doing some practices and discussing stuff together. And one of the patients looked at me and said, I hope Jesus felt as crazy on the cross as I feel right now. And I'll never forget that. Because in the cross, and and, and this is the glory of symbols, is that they can have millions of different meanings. The cross, unfortunately, sometimes means only one thing to certain Christians, and that is this, my sins are forgiven, which is such a beautiful thought. But I hate to break it to you, you're not the only one Jesus died for. And that's not the only thing that happens at the cross. And it can be disputed if, I mean, if you wanna use that language, that's fine. But be comfortable with other people using other language about the cross. That person on that mental health floor needed to know that Jesus shared the same mental illness he has on the cross. And so whatever your point of entry to the cross is, take that point of entry. And strenuous theological reflection is looking at the world around us, our relationships, our politics, our public policy, our neighborhoods, our, you know, the people who stand in line too long at King Supers when we're trying to discern if they actually have the image of God or not because we're impatient, I'm speaking for myself. What does that moment teach me about the cross and the resurrection? And what is at the center of the cross? It is the loss of power, the voluntary loss of power. And meditating on the cross, praying, about the cross, sharing with Jesus and his suffering on the cross helps us resist power. The cross is a loss of power and resurrection is counterintuitively the vindication of those who have lost power. You think about Jesus, his social location. He was a Afro-Asiatic Jew living in occupied territory in the Roman Empire. This is a person who's not a citizen of the Roman Empire, who is outside of the halls of power, who is killed by the Roman Empire. And this is the person that God chooses to resurrect. And it gives us a sense of whose side God is on the least powerful, the most vulnerable. Theological reflection hones a critical eye for the baptized person that places the cross and resurrection at our center, not power. Both are antithetical to power. I wish we had time for discussion, um, but maybe that's a good thing that we don't. I, I encourage you, if you are looking for a Lenten practice, uh, 
take this handout home. There's some suggestions about things that you can reflect on in preparation for Ash Wednesday. Choose, and, and this is what my priest in college always told us. He would always say, if you're giving up something, take on something. If you're giving up something, take on something. It doesn't, it kind of takes the edge of, off the thing that you're giving up. But it also, if you're, you take on daily prayer, if you take on coming to evening prayer here, if you take on serving at a soup kitchen, whatever, the idea is that that practice that you take on might be something that you stick with after Lent, which might not be a bad thing. And so I hope that as you're at home, as you're with family, as you're with people you love, you will consider Jesus's temptations, your own temptations, and the grace that God gives and the power that God gives to resist those temptations and the forgiveness that is there when those temptations are just too much and we give in to them. There is still grace. There is still forgiveness. And that's just how it is. It was so good to be with you this morning. I will see you in church, and I will see you next Sunday, and we'll talk about how we're sustaining these practices. Thank you.